You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi, this is Holly. Today's podcast is a rebroadcast of last week's excellent discussion, co-sponsored with the Center for Strategic and International Studies on whether civic education is really a national security imperative and why, and then what are the solutions? With an introduction by Suzanne Spaulding, former chair of our committee, and moderated by Elizabeth Renskoff Parker, former chair and currently counselor to the committee, the program includes panelists and committee members, Tia Johnson, Stephen Bunnell, Jennifer O'Connor, and Judge James Baker. We hope you find the discussion informative and enlightening. I have the good fortune of introducing the moderator for our panel, my good friend, Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker. Elizabeth is a consultant with the Defending Democratic Institutions Project and has been really a guiding force uh, from the very beginning of this project and has really been leading our civics effort here in the context of that project. She is also a former chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security at the American Bar Association and a lifelong, a lifetime counselor to the committee and a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. But Elizabeth's real expertise for this panel of national security lawyers is that she has held, I think, you know, probably more national, top-level national security legal positions than I think anyone I know. She was general counsel of the NSA. She was principal deputy legal advisor at the Department of State. And she was general counsel at the Central Intelligence Agency, which is where I met her as a junior attorney in OGC at CIA. After that public service, she was the general counsel for the 26th Campus University of Wisconsin system. She was then dean of the McGeorge School of Law at the University of the Pacific in California, and she founded the Journal on National Security Law and Policy. And she was most recently executive director of the State Bar of California. Elizabeth, it is my pleasure to turn over to you to moderate this terrific lineup of national security lawyers on the topic of the national security lawyer and civics education. Well, thank you, Suzanne. I have the great honor of moderating a fabulous panel in the next hour, and I'll just make a couple of very brief comments. Um, I shared with the panel the disturbing results of countless surveys, which I've become aware of, that show that civic knowledge is really at an all-time low. And for me, most disturbing is the finding in one recent survey that only 24% of millennials actually think that democracy is a bad or very bad way to run the country. Imagine that. And there's a corollary because recently in the National Assessment of Educational Progress, we found that only 24% of eighth grade students performed at or above the NAEP proficient level. Perhaps there's an explanation there as to why so many students have no confidence in democracy. Some could argue that the events, the tragic events of January 6th may be further evidence of the problem. So with this in mind, what I'd like to ask this remarkable panel to spend a moment thinking about is whether we're correct in suggesting that civic education has really become a national security imperative. In a minute, I'm going to ask each of the panel members to say a word about themselves then we'll turn to questions. And what I'd like to explore is what does this decline in civic education mean for our democracy? Does the decline mean that we lack the resilience needed to deal with the kind of disinformation attacks we're looking at? 
uh, does it become a national security threat? But are there also broader threats or, to our national security that this lack of civics might contribute to? And then finally, I'm going to ask the panelists if they could give us some uh, specific examples, whether good or bad, from their time as national security lawyers, but also both in and out of government as to how they see this problem. And then I think most importantly, if we're correct in the diagnosis of the problem as truly a national security threat, are there solutions that we should look at? So Judge Jamie Baker, I'd like to begin with you. I tend to embrace just about everything Suzanne says, but I think she may be wrong when she says that I held more national security <laughs> positions than anyone else she knows. I believe you get that award. You have spent a lifetime focused on national security. And I take great credit, I think, in encouraging you to join the Department of State when you were just a pup, <laughs> but you grew up to be an eagle. And my hat is off to you for all you've done. And you went from, actually, you spent time in the military, in the Marines, and then moved, interestingly, to the Congress with Senator Moynihan. And then, of course, I mentioned the State Department, and you moved on eventually at the NSC, and finally, for 15 years, became a judge with the Military Court of Appeals. And now you had the National Security Project at Syracuse University, where you're both a professor of law and at the Maxwell Center, which, of course, is highly regarded for its policy work. So perhaps nobody more than you has seen the broad sweep of civic education, and now you see it in an academic setting. You focused on the ethical frameworks for the rule of law, so values has been something you've looked at. Um, I'm curious to know what your perceptions are from this broad experience that you've had. Oh, boy. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Elizabeth is right that she had a role in my pupdom in government service, for which I thank her, because part of the system of government is having a mentor is a very important thing. And that's not what I came here to say today, but part of education is finding a mentor and learning from them about government and how it works. You asked me to make a comment about ethics, and this ties in with Director Ray's excellent points about informed patriotism and doing the right thing the right way. And in my experience, the hard part of government is doing it the right way. We often know what the right thing to do is, but it's often hard to do it the right way. As lawyers, we sit at the nexus of constitutional friction between the branches of government, where the politicians trying to win, politicians are not necessarily focused on doing the right thing, but on winning. We face the pressures of practice getting to yes, the personalities of practice. Um, most of this resolves around doing the right thing through ethics. And one of the things we don't teach very well, I might say, is ethics. Law schools tend to focus on rules like don't steal from your client. They don't do as well teaching sort of the ethical dilemmas that come up when you have constitutional tensions between competing values. Leon Firth had a wonderful phrase, Elizabeth. It was, the duty of a national security lawyer is to get to yes with honor with the nation well taken care of and the constitution intact. And to understand the nation being well taken care of and the constitution intact, you have to have the ability to look beyond the immediate moment. You have to understand what the constitution intact means and what it means to take care of the nation. And that requires the study of history. 
Um, I love the fact that Director Ray indicated that all his incoming special agents, they go to the 9-11 Memorial, the Martin Luther King Memorial, and to the Holocaust Museum. That's an understanding of history right out of the get-go. History is the key to civic education. It's great to know a lot of facts about government, but understanding how government works, when it doesn't work, and why it doesn't work is a big part of civic education. We can't always assume that the people in government, so we're talking about civic education. I might note that that starts with government and, and not necessarily, we shouldn't assume that everyone in government knows uh, the civics we would like them to know. And here I'm focused not on the structure of government, the, the what of government, but the why of government. I found that a lot of times when I was explaining the law to senior officials or other officials, they knew what the law was, they knew what the constitution said or says, they didn't understand the why. And a lot of times when I was put to the test about getting to yes with honor rather than just to yes, it was because the person I was talking with or the people I were talking with didn't understand the values behind the law and why it was we were in that position that we were in. We were in. And so I think what we bring to the table as lawyers is the ability to not just say what the law is, what democracy is, but why it is and why that provision of the constitution states what it states. We need to do more of that. And then turning to the public, you said I, you, you reminded that I worked for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan at one time, a wonderful public servant who served four different presidents, two of each party, which is something you won't see that often or anymore. Um, and he famously said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. And education is about learning how to critically think, critically think with that knowledge of history and that ability to look through issues, determine fact from fiction. And that's what education brings to the table, this ability to critically think and determine what is fact and so on, and to do what Director Ray said to do, which is to make sure the government is following the right process, not just getting to the result you might like. He also made the point about trust. Trust is all about government. If we don't have trust in government, we won't trust the result or the process. And then one last point this is my final point. I did serve on a court and I found generally in my experience, although it's the narrowest of government missions, the judicial branch is the least understood of the federal branches of government. And one way I sought to address that is by bringing students in to do moot courts and, and mock court trials at the court. And the security uh, loved it in part, and then they didn't love it because the court looked quite different after we were done with it. Um, it looked like a lunchroom, not a courtroom. But that was magical because these students learned for the first time what it meant to stand up in a court and, and speak about the constitution, about the law, and how they could advocate for themselves and for each other. So one of the takeaways here, Director Ray is doing the teddy bear thing with, with his children. I would encourage each of us to find a way that we can bring younger people into our lives as lawyers and give them a sense of how we go about our business of supporting and defending the constitution. Thank you, Elizabeth. Well, thank you, Judge Baker. Um, you did go a little over the two minutes I gave you, but it was well worth it. <laughs> Great expenditure of additional time. Jen O'Connor, I'd like to come to you next. And 
you too have had an extensive experience both in government, but also for you, the private sector. You ended your government career as the general counsel at the Defense Department, but you've been in the White House Counsel's Office and also at Health and Human Services. And you began your career in private practice, but now you're with a major corporate entity, Northrop. And I'm, I'm curious to know, can you say a bit about, first of all, the, the tension between secrecy? How do you balance intelligence and the need for secrecy in a democracy? You saw that, of course, when you were at the Defense Department. And I think I'd also be curious to know whether you have comments about the different uh, perspectives you've seen among those in the private sector versus those within the government as you've gone forward in your career. Thank you. Uh, and, and thanks for organizing this discussion, which is so important. To, to take on those topics, transparency is critical to a working democracy, and that goes for the area of intelligence and national defense operations writ large, as well as other parts of the government. And it's critical because people need to know what their government is doing so that they can choose leaders who do what they want and also so they can hold them accountable. And in the area of intelligence and the military in particular, it's important to show legitimacy and create trust, as Director A was saying. And it's important for Americans, as well as for our allies and partners in other countries, to see that what we're doing is supported by law. And it leads to more effective national security policies. And the balance between that transparency and secrecy is really important because it's also vital that we don't actually weaken or endanger our national security in the process. You know, ongoing or future operations can be endangered if we're not extremely careful about how we treat information. And really importantly, people can be endangered, troops or intelligence assets or others. And so it's really hard to get it right, but the basic principle is simple. It's to be as transparent as possible without endangering people or national security in the process. When I was in the Defense Department, we focused on that a lot across the Obama administration in all kinds of ways and included a lot of public releases of information about how we used military force and conducted national security operations and what the legal basis was for that and framework for it. And I and my, my predecessor GCs and also the State Department legal advisor all made speeches where we would explain these kinds of things. And at the end of the administration, we you know, pulled it all together in a report and we spent a lot of time on things like reporting of civilian casualty numbers, trying to make sure that they were right, releasing a whole range of information about operations, like where troops were and how many there were, and particular operations, just to give a few examples. And it was across all the government agencies that supported national security that we worked this sort of basic process and goal of trying to share as much information as we could safely do you know, because we thought it was important for democracy and for people to understand the legitimacy of what the government was doing. And to your, to your second question, my perspective on all of that has not really changed since I entered the private sector, but I can say that working for a large private sector organization has made it clear that a lot of the principles that we're talking about here related to civic engagement and service are very much true in large private sector organizations. Employees wanna know the mission of their employer and the values. They wanna know that it's gonna do the right thing, that it aims to do the right thing and do it in the right way. They want it to be involved in their communities. You know, For us, STEM education is a big feature and, and our employees wanna be involved in the high school partnerships you know, that we're engaged in. And it's because they want to be engaged in the communities 
and it all kind of fits together. And so I'll stop there because of your time limits. But thank you for putting this together. It's a great topic. It's really important. Well, that's terrific. And, and we'll come back to you and, and try to tease out a little bit more about that. So Tia, if I could go to you next. Once again, a remarkable background. In your case, you became, I think, the first African-American woman to be a colonel in the Army uh, as a JAG lawyer. I think it was almost, what, 20 years in the JAG Corps for you, but now in the academic world, and you've been teaching both at Georgetown and elsewhere. So you've got a broad perspective, but I'd like to kind of ask you to step outside our domestic space and tell us a little bit about the experience you had when you served in Bosnia as a part of the JAG Corps. What did you learn about the civic education needs, both of that country and frankly of our own as well, from that experience? Thank you, Dean Parker. And uh, thank you, Suzanne Spaulding and Dr. Hamry um, for putting on this important discussion and for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. Yes, I was, uh, I was deployed to Bosnia in the early 2000s as part of the NATO peacekeeping force. And so, you know, one of the things we do in the military, we talk about bottom line up front. So I'm gonna answer your last question first. The biggest lesson learned that I took away from those 18 months there was that the veneer of civilization is very fragile and that once ruptured is very difficult to piece it back together. As many people may not realize is that of what were the six provinces in the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia-Herzegovina was the most heterogeneous one. And so for a civil war to erupt between the Slavs who were, the Serbs who were Slavic and the Bosnian Muslims, but they all were Slavs, um, it really, really was, was eye-opening and shocking to everyone. With regards to civic education, this was um, also uh, at the time, Lord Robinson was the Secretary General of NATO and Lord Robinson was committed to taking Bosnia from civil war to European Atlantic integration. And so a lot of time and effort was spent both by our EU allies, as well as NATO on democratization, trying to build capacity in the central government. Yes, educating people, because of course they're emerging out of a communist regime. So you're trying to do all these layers simultaneously. But yes, civic education was, was incredibly important because again, as I said, they were emerging out of a communist regime. So we're trying to fix all of that stuff at the same time. The, the other perspective, by the time I got into Bosnia, I had done a lot of democratization work. I had been fortunate at that time to have worked on the teams on implementing Nunn-Luger, you know, and, and so that was the whole effort to get the nukes out of the former Soviet Union. And so I was misdemocratization. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, going in and 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 meeting with and talking to militaries about the role of a military in a democratic society, and that that's vitally important. And this goes back to the comments that Director Ray was making, that uh, Judge Baker made, with regards to for the military in particular in in American society. I mean, we have a compact with the population. We're the servants of the, of the nation. And so it is vitally important within that relationship then that there's trust and confidence. Now, you know, the military routinely scores very high on public opinion polls with regards to uh, trust and confidence, but you have to protect that relationship and you have to protect that, that trust. And so it is, it's deeply troubling the in the January 6th insurrections 
to see the numbers coming out of the people who've been arrested. I'm looking because I, I don't have my glasses on, so I'm trying to read this one thing. But I'm saying one in five defendants in the cases thus far were either military veterans or had some military service. That's incredibly scary. And the fact that the seriousness with which the Department of Defense took that is evidenced by the actions by uh, the, the brand new Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin, when he ordered a stand down in early February, a 60 day stand down, so that all commands could examine this issue and, and come up with action plans as to how they were going to address that. And so again, it goes back to that, the importance of civic education. You know, the, the military is a microcosm of society. And so as you reported out those scary findings with regards to the dismal state of civic education among young people, well, that's who we're recruiting. I mean, we're recruiting 18 and 19 year olds into the military. And so if they don't understand our system of government, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we take an oath to, we swear to uphold and defend the constitution of the United States, if they don't understand what that means, and the next clause, against all enemies, both foreign and domestic, you know, they, they, have, to, they have to understand what, our, what the Constitution does, that it creates our structure of government, it creates our system of government, and what our role as the military is in that. And it's to defend that. We're, we're not beholden or loyal to a person or even a position, but it's to the Constitution of the United States. Well, that's a, a remarkably powerful set of observations. And I suppose maybe I'm giving you a conclusion, but would you agree that you're not getting them, the recruits who have the background they need? There's a remedial job in civic education from those who are coming into the military. Correct. I mean, again, you know, that's why I always tell people the military is recruiting from the general population. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not creating people from whole. And so if, when they come into us, whether they're coming in an enlistment, so 18, 19, 20-year-olds, or even the officer corps, you know? So we're, we're getting them out of the academies, we're getting them out of undergraduate school and commissioning them as officers. You know, if they don't have that core understanding of our structure of government and how our government operates, as Judge Baker said, you know, what, what are the coordinate branches of government? What are their respective roles? What is the mutual respect that we are to accord each other? You know, if they don't have that understanding, then it's very difficult to maintain that kind of servant leadership role that the military is supposed to have. And another study I was reading that they had polled graduates from uh, the academies and the military, you know, the officer corps, the, the junior officer corps. And it was this real sense of superiority that they felt that military service and being a military officer made them superior to members of the general public. And, and that's dangerous because again, if you find, if you have an officer corps that's in that space, that's when you start getting the thinking of, we know better, the, the civilians are messing this up. Maybe we need to step in and do this in a different way because we can do it in a better way. And that's not the military's role. And so both at the enlisted stage and in our officer's rank, we have got to ensure that personnel are trained and, and knowledgeable about the structure of government, the role of the various branches, what the role of the military is in a democracy, and how we execute that role. Powerful comments. Steve Bunnell, I'd like to come to you next. You've had a very interesting background. We've been talking with Tia a little bit about the military and how important it is for 
incoming officers and, and enlisted people to understand the structure of government, but you as the general counsel of DHS had a very challenging role because you sat in an agency that was really trying to deal with security in the domestic space. We tend to think of security as something that we focus on nationally, or I should say in, in the foreign world. I'd like to ask you a little bit about how you saw that tension between what we can do in our foreign activities when we try to protect the nation from foreign threats and how that then works out when we're really talking about domestic challenges. So could you say a little bit about your time uh, as the general counsel of DHS? Absolutely. And thank you for including me in this discussion in this program. It's, as others have said, an extremely important topic. Yeah, my experience at DHS for me was a shift of focus as I had most of my career had been within the Justice Department, really focusing on purely domestic type issues. And it, what I took away from the DHS experience was really kind of thinking of the security realms in, in really three categories, the, the foreign or international, as you alluded to, and then the border area, and then the domestic you know, interior issues. And in each of those, each of those realms or zones have different sets of governmental authorities associated with them and different restrictions, legal, constitutional. And so for, for DHS, I would say it sort of fills the gaps a little bit between what have been the, the primary areas of other agencies, both at the federal and the local level. The border is certainly an important sort of area where it operates, uh, but, but also inside the country. And its homeland security mission really, just to, to sort of tie it to the civics theme, is really focused on public-private partnerships of various forms to try to promote security. You know, the sort of simple catchphrase of see something, say something, which you see at TSA, is in, in some ways kind of an umbrella description of what the Homeland Security Department tries to do in terms of engaging, ideally, with informed citizen patriots to try to build a homeland security enterprise that isn't necessarily driven by state action in the same way that perhaps some of our foreign activities are, but is more of a collaborative exercise and it depends very heavily on having an informed citizenry, having, it's one thing to see something and say something. It's another thing to see something and say something appropriate and useful. And there's a big difference between those two things. And, and citizens are the ones that are gonna make the difference in terms of the quality of that from the government's perspective and then ultimately from society's perspective. I, I will say one thing that I was struck by uh, when I was at DHS, and which I've become increasingly focused on in my in my present role, which is in the in the fintech space, is the interplay between technology, civics, and security. Because I think, uh, and Director Ray talked about this a little bit, when you look at what's happening in the misinformation space, propaganda is not new, con men are not new. What's new is the ability to use technology that target people and, and artificial intelligence to leverage that targeting and to do that targeting at scale and speed and, and cheap cost. And that creates a different threat landscape than we've ever had before. Uh, and again, it brings, brings us back to civics in the sense that you need to have some tech literacy along with your traditional 
civics. And I hope we're able to figure out ways to leverage technology to promote good ends, not just to tap into our, our baser instincts in some ways. And, and, and we can make our democracy stronger. We can make our civics education more compelling if we actually use the technology, which is in some ways undermining civics. So we should use technology to promote civil discourse, to break down silos of information, and, and ultimately to promote more analog and in-person engagement, because that's really where community happens. And that's, that's kind of where the good stuff of participation occurs. So it, it ultimately leads you to service, not just reading online. Well, I think you actually anticipated a question that I was going to ask you, but maybe I'll ask it nonetheless. You've moved into computer security tech issues rather significantly, I think, in your, your positions after DHS. And I wonder, uh, in doing so, I think now you're, you're with a new organization that's talking about international developing a, a, a new global payment system. Has your perspective changed now that you've returned to the private sector? What, what differences in the world are you seeing now from a private perspective? on these kinds of issues? Yeah, um, I mean, what's, what's interesting when you're a lawyer in the private sector is you're, at least in my current role, I am, I'm helping to bridge understanding of the government and, and hopefully building at least some level of trust in, in the government, which is sort of the flip side of what the, what the government tries to do when it's building trust from the public-private partnership perspective. And, and so there's an element of civic education in that exercise as an advisor. But the success of the project that I'm involved with and, with and many others is really about figuring out ways for the private sector and the public sector to work together towards common goals and common ends. And again, there's been you know, a lot of uh, mention of trust. It, it really does come down to building those, not, it's not just knowledge, but it's, it's actual relationships and so yeah, the world, it's interesting when you're in the public sector, your, your ultimate goal is to serve the rest of the people who are in the private sector. And yet sometimes that, that gets lost. And I have to remind my client and my clients that sometimes it's really just a function of letting the public sector understand what you're doing in the private sector, because ultimately well-intentioned public servants are there to serve the public and you're part of the public. So it, again, it's civics in a different form. Well, now I'd like to move to questions, not just mine, but I've had a couple of very important ones that are coming in from our audience. But before I do, we've only got about oh, 25 minutes left, and I want to be sure we don't miss a chance to talk about possible solutions if we believe, and I think what I've heard is that there is a problem in civic education. You agree with that. What kind of solutions might there be? And, and here I would just remind the audience, I think the panel's aware of this, that just yesterday, two important things happened. Suzanne mentioned the introduction of the Civics Secures Democracy Act of 2021. This is bipartisan legislation, very important. And I might ask one of you to comment on that. And then secondly, there was also a hearing yesterday uh, by the uh, Senate Arms Service Committee, again, uh, hearing testimony from the Bipartisan Commission on Military, National, and Public Service, which was an 11-member commission established in honor of the late Senator John McCain, making extremely important recommendations on how to improve not just 
military service, but uh, also uh, public service generally. And interesting to me, it might not have started out with this notion, but it clearly concluded with a view that civic education has got to be enhanced and improved. So let me just start by asking Jamie Baker, would you like to make a comment on either of these proposals or what you think the solution might be? And and as you do, let me call your attention to one, I think, very important question from the public. And I'll simply read it. How can we ensure that civic education serves to expand students' capability to be discerning and thoughtful, not as a cover to propaganda? And can we convince the broad public that civic education itself is not simply another name for propaganda. So let's start with you, Jamie, and then I think I might ask each of the panelists to just make a comment on this, if you would. Uh, Thank you for your question, and thank you to the member of the public for their question. I have uh, three responses, and I'd like, though, to start with a chapeau, which focuses on the input rather than the output. The output is nobody knows about government, or only 10% know this, or 8% know that. Focusing on the input, uh, I'm thinking of the American historian and educator, Whitney Griswold, who said in 1959, writing of communism, fascism, and McCarthyism, in the long run of history, the censor and the inquisitor have always lost. The only sure weapon against bad ideas is better ideas. The source of better ideas is wisdom. The surest path to wisdom is a liberal education a liberal education. So point one, education is a zero sum game. The more of one thing you teach, the less of another you teach. I was a board chair in my previous life of a school and it was all STEM, STEM, STEM. That's all anybody wanted to learn. Science, math, well enough. If we're gonna compete successfully with China, we need STEM. Nobody, no parent ever came to me and complained they weren't getting enough constitutional law or historical analysis at the school. They wanted calculus in third grade and robotics in kindergarten. And if we're going to talk about civic education, we have to realize that we're going to have to give something up for it. And and we're going to have to return to a study of the liberal arts. Leadership is a liberal art. Government is a liberal art. You don't learn leadership from math, you learn it from Shakespeare and reading history, point one. Point two, teachers are public servants and we have to act like they're public servants. If we act like they're bureaucrats or we act like uh, we don't care about them, uh, we might get a product that looks like that. Uh, Teachers are wonderful public servants. They're every bit as much public servants as people who work for the government. And I love Steve's point about public servants can't forget that they serve the public. Uh, It's something to always keep in mind, but that's part of teachers as well. And when you look at the most successful educational programs around the world, uh, oftentimes it starts with respect for the teachers. The top college graduates are going into the field of teaching, not because of the pay, but because of the respect that is given to teachers at the primary, secondary, and even at the university level. And then uh, the ABA, I think, can play a role here too, in terms of what they support and how they support it. 
law schools are still teaching to the needs of the last century. And by the needs of the last century, I mean the 19th century, not even the 20th century. The curriculum has not changed. And the ABA likes to complain a lot of, about a lot of things. They can be part of the solution here by being as good at teaching rule of law in the United States and encouraging the teaching of rule of law in the United States as much as they are good about teaching it overseas. The rule of law initiative at the ABA is the gold standard in the field, but they don't have comparable programs in the United States. So as to the question from the, the, the audience, uh, how do you avoid propaganda? And that, in my view, you avoid that because you're teaching people to critically think, not telling them what to think. You're teaching them history, you're teaching them communication skills so they can parse arguments. Lori Hobart, my colleague says, we read well to write well. That's a liberal art. And why do we care about writing well? Because that's how we make persuasive arguments. That's what we need to be teaching because that's the route to civic success. That's my response there. Not propaganda, the ability to critically think and critically communicate. And I, I think I would say that the new legislation would embrace that. Um, it would do two things that you've mentioned are key. And one is to increase at the national level funding for civics and history so that they get the same attention that STEM topics do now, but specifically avoiding the need to prescribe any curriculum, recognizing that standards are really set at the state level. Tia Johnson, I'd like to come to you for a minute, if I might. I mentioned the testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee yesterday. The Commission on Military, National, and Public Service was a very impressive effort, two years. I think something like 4,300 uh, comments received, 350 private organizations talked to it. It was really a very comprehensive engagement with the public. Among the comments they make is that something like 0.5% of Americans currently have experience with active service in the military. And so it's an increasingly smaller part of the population. Uh, they also stress the point that there are too few opportunities for public service outside of the military. I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on how you think that kind of a, an increased opportunity to engage even in student years might be valuable. Thank you. Yes, you're, you're correct. The, the report entitled Inspired to Serve had multiple recommendations in various categories. And one of the areas that we're talking about was the best practices in civic education and service, what they call service learning. And they're stressing the importance of incorporating both civics education, which Judge Baker just spoke about, but also the other component of service learning in K through 12 education, as well as in higher education. And service learning then would be those opportunities, as you mentioned, to, to get students out of the classroom, to, to be able to translate the things that they learned in the classroom and put it into action. And so you know, youth programs uh, or even plugging into pre-existing programs would again, inculcate them with this sense of service. When I was uh, still on active duty, I used to keep a sign under my desk, you know, under the, we used to have the glass on the desk. And it, and it said that with every privilege 
there's a responsibility. With every right comes a responsibility. And I think that part of what we are seeing is that disconnect, that cognitive dissonance between a right. People say, oh, it's my right to do whatever, but they don't understand that as a citizen of the United States, they also have responsibilities and that they must perform those responsibilities. And so the whole idea behind the recommendations that the commission makes is to, to try to embed that into particularly K through 12, that they will then come out of, have, have opportunities during that period, and then more importantly, come out and, and maybe go into one of the national service programs, you know, kind of like a Peace Corps, a domestic Peace Corps, as it were. We saw that with the, um, is it Teach for America? Um, as one of, as one of the programs, of course, we had the traditional programs, um, wherein in the health department, when people went into public health, and and went to some of the um, state, local, or tribal areas to, to practice. So th that's what the the commission is recommending: increasing those types of opportunities as a bridge, so to give students both the foundational knowledge as Judge Baker talked about, and then operationalize that by allowing them to implement it through one of these vehicles. Terrific. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, you know, it seems to me there's a role here for all parts of our society to play. And, and General Connor, if I could come to you now that you're in the private sector and uh, with a, a substantial uh, corporate entity, in 2019, November, I guess it was, the Chamber of Public Commerce pardon me, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, came out with a very important report that they co-authored with Harvard. And they talked about the business case for civic education. I wonder whether you could share your views as to whether you think there's a role for our private sector to play large corporations, small corporations, in embracing this problem and its solutions. I do. And I, I just want to share one thought that I had about your sort of introduction to the testimony yesterday and the report. And I was also struck by this when I was listening to what Tia was saying. One of the things that this made me think about is that, you know, it used to be that we had a much broader, more diverse sort of portion of the population who had a member of the family serve in the military at some capacity at some time. And so they had a sort of natural understanding of what it does, and also it served as an inspiration um, to join either in uniform or, or as civilians or in other ways. And I think you still find that many, many, many of the people who put on a uniform come from a family where there is somebody in their family uh, who already did that. And, you know, that isn't enough. For one thing, it's not diverse enough, right? Diverse in every sense of, you know, perspectives of background, of uh, perspective of geography, and you need all of that diversity for good decision making. So, you know, I think one of the most important goals uh, enhancing civic education is to really enhance the understanding of the military and what service in the military is, and to inspire a broader set of young people to want to serve. And I was also struck that it's true in the legal field very much. You know, when I was at DOD, and, and still now, when I talk to law students, I tell them that service in the JAG Corps is a terrific career path. It's great experience. It's a great job. You get to serve. And this isn't something that everybody hears about in law school, you know, as a career path, but it's a terrific career path. And we need more of them to explore it. And they need to know what it is and why it's attractive and all of that. So that's kind of a, a part of this. 
And I think in terms of the question of the, the private sector and its role, it's, it's very varied. I mean, I work at, at a large organization who has you know, national security as part of its mission because that's what its customers are engaged in and hires many, many, many people who come from the prior government careers in the area of defense and national security. And it's tremendously beneficial to have that experience, but it's also very important in terms of what we do to understand what the government's aims are and the responsibilities that come with that, the you know, structure and framework that surrounds it. And so having a well-informed set of employees who are, are serving private institutions, you know, is as important as having well-informed employees who are serving public institutions. It all kind of comes together. And, you know, and as I said earlier, we all, they are, we're all part of communities where we live. And so companies have a role to play in terms of encouraging dialogue and understanding and community engagement among their employees because we're part of the communities in which we work. Well, thank you. I'm getting some terrific questions here. And, and I think maybe what I'll, I'll do, Steve Brunel, is to ask you to, to handle one of them. One person wants to know what during your government service did you do to lead by example and, if you will, foster civic lessons? And adding to that, what do you think the current national security leaders themselves ought to be doing to improve understanding of the importance of civics? And I would say here that although we, we've been talking about K through 12 or maybe even K through 22, if you add law schools, a big part of our population is out of school, and we've got to address them as well, because I think what our survey results will tell us is that this decline in civic education didn't happen uh, just overnight. It's been a five-decade process, probably dating back even to the time when we first saw that we had a, or shall we say, a gap in our STEM education as a result of the Sputnik launch. So this has been something that has been building over time. So Steve, if you would, could you say a little bit about what kind of leadership opportunities you saw while in government to promote civics among both, I think, the government workforce as well as the public that you importantly point out it's our goal to serve? I love the point about sort of continuing civics education, as it were. I think that was uh, kind of what you were suggesting. And, and just to link it back to my concern with technology and its uh, its impact on, on these issues, this was something I, I, I worried a lot about when I was at the Homeland Security Department. And we did both internally and externally launch what, what we call the Cyber Literacy Program, which was to try to inform people both inside the government and outside the government about the risk, the cybersecurity risks, and the fact that so much of our lives are now reflected in data and the security of that data is really fundamental to our collective security. But what's interesting uh, when you think about education is we have more we have more grandparents in the United States than we have grandchildren right now. So the, the, the population that is probably most in need of say greater tech literacy to protect them against say misinformation and some of the the other threats that we were, were talking about, Director Ray talked about, are not the school kids when it comes to the technology risks. It's uh, older people. It's, it's my parents who are perhaps a little bit too trusting of emails that 
are too good to be true and happy to click on them without thinking twice. And so the collective effect of, of ignorance at that level is, is, is a big deal. So that was something that we tried to do at the Homeland Security Department. There's, there, there are opportunities to do a lot more of that sort of public service education that make us all stronger. It's, it's really kind of an analogy to a public health uh, education campaign. That's very helpful. A couple of questions want to know, I think building on that, what the national security legal community can and should be doing to engage more at all levels in addressing this problem. And I think maybe I'll just make that the last question and let each of you make a quick comment, if you would. And maybe I'll go right back to the beginning and start with you, Jamie Baker. Uh, thank you. First, we all have an obligation to get out and communicate and to say that law is not a specialty. You don't need to go to law school to understand law or to value law. It is who we are as a nation. It's our defining characteristic. If you're a Lance Corporal in the military, you're supposed to understand the law and follow it, including the law of armed conflict. So lesson number one is to make the law accessible to all, as accessible as it can possibly be. And that starts with an understanding of the Constitution as a procedural document and its uh, underpinning of our democracy. Um, so that's our task as teachers. We're all teachers there. Uh, think big is the second point rather than small. Lawyers get burdened down by the specific tasks they are performing, but we have to always think big and, and remind people of the greater whole, that it all adds up to a greater whole. And I'm sitting here, I love Steve's comment about public health education in the technology area. I'm living proof, oh, I, perhaps I'm not living proof. You can learn new technologies even as you get older. And one of the things law schools should be teaching, which they're not, and this goes back to grumping about the ABA and its standards, is law schools are not teaching technology or requiring it to be taught. They're teaching the rule of perpetuities and what they should be teaching is artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So Tia, let me come to you. Well, since uh, Judge Baker threw out the gauntlet, <laughs> the um, what I was gonna address, uh, going back to what we can do, um, I was gonna give some examples of what Georgetown Law Center has been doing and they're committed to doing. It has had the street law program for, for a very long time. And for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, those are programs that are embedded in law schools that, that go out and they're teaching these types of ideas, these types of concepts in high school classes. Um, it's an old program. I did it when I was in law school and you know we were chiseling our notes on the, on the rocks. So, um, but, but Georgetown has a very robust street law program. Also similarly, the university started uh, about a couple of years ago, what they call their early outreach initiative. And that's reaching into the high schools who, who may not be in the street law program, but reaching into the high schools in the public school districts that, that are surrounding uh, Washington, D.C. So particularly the, the Maryland districts and, and the Northern Virginia districts. And it's the same type of thing, but they bring them into the law school and, and we do instruction with them. So I, I've been involved in that early outreach initiative. And it's the same idea as both Steve and, and Judge Baker have, have noted to, to, to help them to understand that the, the constitution is not this disembodied thing that is the very lifeblood of our nation, that it that is the structure of our government, that is the, it's our system of governance 
and what does that mean? And then how does that impact them in, a, in their daily lives? Um, and so that that's very important. And then again, you know, in the law school instruction, embedding these ideas. I mean, I, I teach within the national security law realm. So, I mean, I teach a course on congressional oversight. And again, it's all about, you know, Article One, Article Two powers, and 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 how that tension, and how the Article Three courts have to come in and get involved in, in that process. And so, it is important to teach this at all levels, and the whole idea of yes, continuing education. That you know, I think that that that's also vitally important because more importantly, you know, that's that generation that is the most likely to be the most active voters. They're the ones who are going to probably be more more likely to try to hold their uh, elected representatives accountable. So we we want them to also exercise critical thinking skills and not to buy into, as Steve said, you know, you get the email and you click it and you believe it, or or I read it on Facebook, so it must be true. You know that that's one of the things that the that Georgetown in particular is trying to do in furthering civic education at the high school undergraduate. Oh yeah, we have the boot camp. I'm sorry. That's that's how we reach out to the undergraduates. That's the boot camp. And then um, certainly within law school. That's great. So Jen O'Connor, I want to come to you and I just want to say that your comment about the JAG Corps resonated for me. I have the zeal of a converted too. Um, I grew up at a time when I thought the military was a junk item and then I met the JAG Corps and I thought, oh dear, I think I got that wrong. Um, they're terrific and it is a good career path. But any things you would like to add as to what we ought to be doing as either current or past national security lawyers to try and engage these topics? Uh, I think we all have opportunities to talk with groups of people who are not national security lawyers, right? And I think taking those opportunities to talk about what we did, what we do, what our experiences are, and what the lawyers who work in national security and what the national security part of the government does generally is important. I think the the street law, I, I love that comment and that program, it's great. And programs where it doesn't have to be like a full-blown program, but opportunities to do a, you know, one-day talk with high school students or, um, you know, be part of a mentor program where you meet a a small number of of students and, you know, not just students in high school, but also students in college and, and beyond that in law school. I think sort of shedding light and, you know, helping people to understand it will help to bring them into it. And I think what we, it's very important, I think, and and I think some of the the things that the commission report talked about in terms of having more opportunities for people to spend a couple of years in sort of a Peace Corps type, National Service Corps type, AmeriCorps type program where they can participate. I think that's critical. And I think the national security lawyer kind of role can be to help encourage people to do that kind of thing by helping them understand what this piece of the world is all about. Great. Well, that's that's helpful, too. And finally, Steve, I'm going to give you, I think, the last word here. Thoughts from you on what those who've had national security law experiences, certainly you have at DHS and are now in the private sector, ought to be doing to help educate people on these topics? Well, I have sort of two thoughts. One is just to echo Jamie's, he's been very eloquent on this, about each of us having a duty, a personal duty to pay it forward and uh, in, in whatever ways are available to you. It could be street law, it could be law school, it could be something in between. And so that's one. I, I think the other thing, and, and I, I remember back to uh, elementary school being uh, assigned to uh, recite by memory 
President Kennedy's inauguration speech, or at least parts of it, the part that included, ask not what you, your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I think you know, a lot of this is leadership and we need, we, we need a narrative. Judge Baker is absolutely right. History is the key. We are hardwired as human beings to respond to stories. That's what pull us together. I think one of the things we're missing in this country are unifying stories. We need to have stories that speak to everybody, not just to some segments of our country. You can't gloss over the ugly parts of history, but you can, you can present them alongside with the optimistic parts of our, of our culture and of our country. And, and, and that's really what we need to do collectively, but also at the very top, the people who are influential in our government need to, need to articulate a unifying story that we can all get around that's optimistic and inspiring. Uh, that's how you get collective action. Well, this has been a wonderful panel, and I hope I don't put words into your mouths, but I think everybody in your comments suggests that we do have a problem with inadequate attention to civic education and history, and that we ignore this at our peril. And certainly, that's one of the reasons why we as national security lawyers think this is a topic that we ought to be raising in the national security communities that we are we are familiar and engaged with. And so I thank you for the time you've taken to explore some of the possible solutions and, and your perspectives. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.